On this episode, Brad Todd. Elections are legitimate when they are are fair and people accept that they were conducted fairly. And if, if you believe that merely losing the popular vote means it's not fair, then you should go consult the Constitution. And if you don't like what you find in the Constitution, Article 5 is there ready for you to use to change it. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. Brad is a Republican consultant in Washington. (laughs) And now, look, I know what you're thinking. That makes him another out-of-touch elitist. And I like to kid with him all the time that we're both out-of-touch elitists. And that's what people think of us, and that's just fine. But but he's not. Maybe I am. But he's really not. And he even co-wrote a book with none other than Selena Zito, my colleague at The Examiner, that proves it. Their book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. I'm constantly getting questions from Democrats, but some Republicans, too, to the effect of what's the deal with GOP voters? What makes them tick? Why do they love Trump so much? And well, Brad knows the answer. He gets it as much as anyone. And that makes him the perfect guest for In Trump's Shadow. And now, Brad Todd. First, I'll ask a really flagrantly inflammatory question, um, which is, you know, everywhere I go, um, particularly if I'm talking to Democrats or if I'm talking to Republicans that that are would like to turn the page on Trump at the very least. There's a lot of frustration among these voters that when they watch Republican politicians that are still in office or Republicans running for office, that the in their view, there's so much fealty to Trump. You know, the election was stolen. They better agree with him. This or that, they better agree with them. Um, that's how they see it. Are they seeing what is, is that what is happening? Are these Republicans kowtowing to Trump? And and if so, is there a reason for that? You no, know, you know what I think is happening is, um, you know, a hostile takeover of the Republican Party happened in 2016. Uh, and it happened despite the best efforts of most of what might be considered the elders of the Republican Party, right? The donor class and the operative class really wanted Jeb Bush to be the nominee. And the voters said, absolutely not. We're going to do something that's exactly opposite of Jeb Bush. And that's Donald Trump. This is not a situation Donald Trump created. It's a situation the voters in the Republican Party created. And so I think what you see now is um, it's a bit of a litmus test of are you still on the side of uh, those uh, party elders and donors who um, a lot of the voters felt had uh, sort of taken the Republican Party in the wrong direction? Or are you in the reform mindset? And I think this is going to go on. If, if Donald Trump decided he was completely out of politics today, never going to ever interject his thoughts again on politics, this phenomenon would still be happening. You still have this group of voters that make up the vast bulk of the Republican electorate demanding uh, some sort of proof that you're not in on the inside game uh, in Washington. And, and that's really, uh, to me, uh, what, what I see in it is, it is it's mostly about, uh, uh, you know, a, a frustration uh, with sort of the 
you know, back, lack of a better term, the old Boehner wing of the Republican Party. So is this frustration with the Washington establishment and the elites and all that stuff? Is it so pronounced that it, it almost doesn't matter what Trump says or does? And let's put aside, you know, some people think think that he says and does a whole bunch of things that should make him, uh, you know, should warrant excommunication. I'm not I'm not even picking a side here, but like, is is it that pronounced that the bar for washing their hands of Trump is so high because of how they feel about Washington? Yes, I think the the whole notion of wash your hands of Trump or not wash your hands of Trump, that's a Washington game. Uh, and, and, and it's easy for all of us to follow along with it that way. But I think the questions inside the Republican Party are much bigger and they transcend him. They, they started before him and they transcend him. You know, if you, if you, want, to, if you de- want to look at proof, you can look at the Virginia governor's election. Right. If you look in southwest Virginia and Appalachia, um, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate for governor, did far better than Donald Trump did. He did 83% in the Appalachia part of Virginia, right? That Southwest part that's sort of coal country. Uh, he did he did 83%. Trump had only gotten 79. And with Yunkin, you had a historic turnout. He had the biggest turnout in the governor's race you ever had. Now, to put that in, in perspective, if you go back a couple of cycles, Virginia had the nominee for governor was Jerry Kilgore. Uh, who'd been the attorney general, but Jerry Kilgore's from coal country. His family, his brother, Terry Kilgore is the current majority leader in the state house. His family literally is the most prominent family on the Republican side in coal country uh, in in the Appalachia part of Virginia. Jerry just got 61%. Now, there's no way that Glenn Youngkin, the CEO of the Carlisle Group, a Wall Street guy, is more suited to Appalachia than Jerry Kilgore. He's not. However, the realignment moves on. And this realignment toward a sort of a a party of work on the Republican side versus a party of woke on the Democratic side, it's that just shows you it's bigger than any one of these figures at the top of it. Glenn Youngkin didn't cause coal country to go 83 percent for him, uh, you know, which is a third better than it had been for Jerry Kilgore, nor did Donald Trump cause this realignment in the Republican Party nationally. Very interesting. In other words, and look, you and Selena covered this in The Great Revolt inside the populist coalition reshaping American politics. Um, And I want to get to that in just a second, but I just want to kind of follow up on this one, on this thread one last time here, just because again, I get questions. I think people have a hard time answering it. You know, I try to tell people that Republican politicians aren't afraid of Trump. They're afraid of their own voters or they're not responding to Trump personally. No question. They're responding to their own voters Talk about just for a minute. And Selena's done a lot of reporting on this over the years. Look, as somebody with a firm where you guys do your own polling, you craft ads, and I know you travel a ton to these different states and districts where you're advising Republican candidates. And this is what maybe is difficult for Washington to understand. But look, I talk to people all over the country, and if they don't think like the modern day Republican voter, they don't get it either. There is a real, I guess, even though it's an American tradition to be dissatisfied with Washington and throw the bums out. I mean, we've been saying that for 200 plus years and then outsider politicians show up or politicians claiming to be outsiders and throw them out and make me the new insider. 
But it seems like there's something particular going on with voters that wasn't happening 20 years ago or 40 years ago, where at least these populist conservatives or people that tend to, to, to vote Republican and, and think of themselves as conservatives are just really unhappy with what they feel is the treatment that they have been getting from, from the government. And, and I feel like this is just something that is very deep-seated that people may not totally get. Well, I, there, there's no question that a lot of it is that they, they believe that the elite ruling class just tells them what to do uh, and, and that, that, that they're not heard. Um, some of this, of course, is due to the Democratic uh, realignment leftward. Uh, you know, Barack Obama uh, did very well in the rural Midwest, the industrial parts of the Midwest, where, where a lot of those voters are economically moderate to liberal, uh, but they're socially conservative. Uh, the, 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 this sort of blue collar working class, many of whom are Catholic, many of whom are secular, uh, they suddenly don't feel like they have a home in the Democratic Party. That is just not an option. And they may think, hey, look, the Republican Party is just way too country club for me. It's way too capitalist. It's way too uh, libertarian. And in, in, in the fact that it, it, it's, you know, the Republicans didn't historically support like things like, oh, the minimum wage uh, increases that, that came about or, or Medicare, or Social Security. So those voters, you know, for years have been skeptical of Republicans, but now they think there's just no way they can stay in the Democratic Party. And so they feel like the Democratic Party's social policies uh, and sort of the, the takeover, if you will, the Elizabeth Warren Subaru wing of the Democratic Party uh, has, has sort of made it impossible for a pickup truck driver to stay with the Dems. Uh, but as a result, they're also very skeptical of Republicans. Uh, they, 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 they were skeptical of you know, Paulson and the bailouts under George Bush. They weren't crazy about wars that never seemed to end in the Middle East, perpetrated by Republicans, uh, supported by me. Uh, you know, the, the, that sort of thing they, they makes them skeptical of the Democrats on culture and it makes them skeptical uh, of the Republicans on, on financial issues, right? They've never been Chamber of Commerce Republicans. Well, those voters now make up a significant part of the Republican base. Uh, and so it, you see that, that it, it makes the Republican Party's primary electorate a lot more defiant uh, and, a lot, and, and where outsider has become taken the place of conservative as the ideology. Why? Because some of the voters in our base now are not particularly conservative, especially on economic issues. Most Republican primary voters are conservative on social issues. They believe you ought to be able to own a gun. They think there ought to be some religious liberty. They're not for woke reforms like listing your pronouns uh, when everyone obviously knows what your pronouns are. Like th so some of those things they they uh, 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 find, find problematic uh, with, with the left, but they, they're also skeptical of the right. And, and so these are not Barry Goldwater, laissez-faire uh, conservatives anymore. And, you know, for years, uh, every presidential election was FDR versus Barry Goldwater. The Democrats always had somebody with a big redistribution plan aimed at the middle class or the lower middle class. And Republicans always had a candidate who was preaching individual responsibility and liberty, even if that had some consequences that weren't all desirable. Well, Donald Trump and really Barack Obama and Donald Trump changed that. That's, that's called the fifth party system, uh, the FDR versus, uh, versus Barry Goldwater, in my view. You know, if you go back to Mitt Romney, he was basically Barry Goldwater. In fact, he picked Paul Ryan, uh, whose signature issue was, was uh, reforming entitlements. I mean, you can't get more Barry Goldwater than that, right? But Barack Obama did something pretty significant in that race in 2012. He had a big New Deal program in his pocket, right? The ACA, and he didn't run on it. 
you can't find the ACA in Barack Obama's advertising for re-election in 2012. Why? Because he decided culture was better. He ran on things like abortion uh, on TV and, and especially in the key markets in that race, which included like Northern Virginia or Denver, Colorado. It was all abortion all the time. He was running on social policy instead of on his big economic redistribution scheme. So the Democrats gave the, the fifth party system in 2012. 2016 comes along and the Republican primary voters decided we weren't going to run on that either. You pick Donald Trump, who says, hey, Social Security and Medicare reform, that's off the table. He said that from the very beginning. Uh, he, he campaigned with an eye toward iron workers and union workers in the trades. Uh, and, you know, it, it reset the, cal cal the calculus on our side. And so you don't see Paul, what happened to Paul Ryan. He left Congress because reforming Medicare and Social Security. And he left Congress as a young man at the peak of his power. Why? Because the consensus for reforming entitlements is gone on the Republican side. And so just as you don't see uh, many people rallying to Joe Manchin, uh, who might have suited that old Democratic Party, uh, right, that old FDR Democratic Party very well. He has no defenders on the Democratic side now. And Paul Ryan has none on the Republican side. Uh, so you've seen a real realignment uh, in both sides. And so I think it's no surprise it's shaken up our politics all over. Interesting. I think that's a good segue into what you and Selena Zito wrote about in The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. I keep saying the name of the book, because even Bye. though it's been out for a few years, I think that for everybody who loves to ask me, now first of all, you should keep asking me what's wrong with the Republican Party if you think there's something wrong with it, because that helps employ me, gives me a job. I need to report and explain <laughs> things to you. So please. That's right. That's right. Click on Drucker. Uh, but you should also, this is a great book. It's a timeless book in a way. And it's, you know, what I was thinking recently, I wanted to do a, a pod on who Republican voters were and what the coalition looked like, I just thought to myself, well, it's been sitting on my bookshelf, you know, for four years and it's still relevant. So, look, I remember you and I once had a conversation um, and you told me, you know, Republicans keep chasing the coalition they want rather than just uh, accepting the coalition they have that is a winning coalition. And even though Republicans lost the House in 18 and the presidency in the Senate, in 20, they gained 15 House seats, and they did so in part because of gains with non-white voters and working class voters, and even reviving some of their fortunes in, in certain suburban districts. Talk about, and if you, can, if you can do this, and it doesn't make your head explode, what, you know, what the Republican coalition is today broadly compared to what it was at the beginning of the century. Sure. And I, and I appreciate the plug for the book. Uh, you know, it, it, it has held up pretty well. And uh, the, we, the premise of our book was that there was a realignment that that was bigger than 2016 election uh, and that it bared watching going forward. Uh, and, it, and it definitely has done that. You know, if you go back uh, and it's funny, David, I get the same questions when I give speeches to corporate and trade association audiences, I still get the exact same questions as I got giving speeches in 2017 and 2018 when the book came out. Uh, it, it, it's, it, I think this realignment is still a thing a lot of people are grappling with. After Romney lost, the Republican Party went through a big autopsy phase. That's something Republicans do and Democrats don't do, by the way. 
we lose and we put on sackcloth and smear ashes on our face and and immediately rend our garments and ask what we how could we have done something so wrong when democrats lose they immediately go oh well the republicans must have been racist and trick the trick the rubes out there uh you know there's no autopsy on the dem side for losses but we always do one and um in 2012, the Republican National Committee did a big autopsy, wrote a big bound, bound report at the end of it. You know, the, the Growth uh, and Opportunity Project. That's right. It, the, which initials, right? Door, the initials worked. It serves as doorstops at the RNC's building today, even still. <laughs> um, but, you know, that report basically followed the logic that uh, had been prevalent in the Republican Party for decades, which is this, this mythical unicorn suburban voter who was only hesitating on voting Republican because uh, she typically is in, in the mythology was uncomfortable with the Republican positions on social issues. And she was uncomfortable with where the Republican Party was on immigration. Uh, that, that's pretty much I've just distilled down the entire report for you if you don't have so you don't have to read it now. Um, and, and this theory always fancied that the independent middle voter was someone who lived down the street from the people who wrote the report, uh, right? Someone in the suburbs, someone educated. Uh, but something happened in 2016 that surprised a lot of people. The Republicans did a lot better in the middle. Uh, and they did, as you point out, a lot better in the middle in 2020. It just was a different middle. Uh, you know, Hispanic voters are moving rightward at a pretty radically quick pace. Cory Gardner, I did his Senate race in Colorado in 2020. We lost. Uh, but he did five points better with Hispanics than he did with white voters. Uh, if you told me that uh, 15, 20 years ago, and I would have said, wow, we're going to win Colorado by 10 points. Well, we didn't. We lost it, man, not by a little. Uh, but that shows you a realignment that's happening. Rick Scott in Florida, another one of my clients, he is a United States senator today because he outperformed the Republican number with Puerto Rican voters. Period. End of story. Won by 10,000 votes in 2018. You can you can go find where it was. It was Puerto Rican voters voting in the Florida election for the first time that put him over the top. And that that movement on the part of Hispanic voters toward the Republican Party is driven in part by the fact that as the Republican Party becomes less country club oriented, less sort of Wall Street oriented, they're a lot more comfortable in it. They're more comfortable culturally with Republicans than they are with Democrats. And once Republicans attack, sort of take on a little bit more of a populist tone of little guy versus big guy, they're a lot more comfortable. And, and, and what is, what, if you come to this country uh, from somewhere south of here, what's your aspiration? It's to work for yourself. It's to start, start your own version of the American dream. Own a house, work for yourself, move to a place with good schools. Well, that resonates uh, pretty well with the Republican Party's platform. And so this, this, this movement toward sort of a multi-ethnic party of work is the future of the Republican Party if, if we're willing to seize it. Now, it doesn't mean we give up on the suburbs. Glenn Youngkin uh, improved his standing in the suburbs uh, in, in Virginia this time, but we should note, he didn't improve it back to where it was 20 years ago. In fact, Jerry Kilgore, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, if you go back to Jerry's governor's race in 2005, and he got 38 in Fairfax County. Glenn Youngkin just got 34. That's the largest suburban county outside D.C. And so even while Youngkin was winning and Kilgore was losing, performance in the suburbs, well, yes, it was better than it was four years ago or eight years ago. It wasn't better than it was two decades ago. So Republicans uh, have a new reality in the suburbs. What is it? it? It means that we're going to do 
target voters who are moving in from rural areas to, to live in the suburbs or the exurbs. It means we're going to target new Americans who are moving into the suburbs because they want good schools and they want to own their own own their own piece of dirt. Uh, it also means we're going to target capitalists. You know, there are some voters in the suburbs who voted with Democrats uh, in 2018 and 2020. They didn't like Donald Trump. They didn't like his the way he comports himself. They didn't. They thought he was crude. They didn't like the way he handled defeat in 2020. And so those voters, though, are willing to come back to us, some of them, some of them on capitalist grounds. And so that the, that what, again, the party of work, if the Republican Party is a party that focuses on work, that focuses on the fact that you ought to be able to come to America, work, handle our traditional values, do things the right way, work very hard, you can get ahead and the government ought not stop you. Um, I, I think that that, that uh, trying to, and, and, and by the way, we're not gonna let the far left crowd mess your kids up in school. That's, an, that's another part of it. That's another part of that American dream. And I think that that's the future of the Republican Party. Very interesting. Um, one of the things we've seen um, in the 21st century is wave after wave after wave election. And right now it appears like we're on track possibly for yet another wave election in 2022 with Republicans gaining big. I mean, the way I if my scorecard in my head is correct here, um, we had a wave in six. It was like a two cycle wave, right? Democratic mm -hmm. wave wins in six and eight. Republican wave wins in 10 and 14. Democratic wave in, win in 2018. And now Republicans in 2022 could snap this thing back the other way and not just win uh, back Congress because the margins are so thin and historical trends, but but win uh, really big. You know, when I talked to your co-author, Selena, about this, and, and Selena and I are friends, and we yap about this all the time, you know, she likes to tell me, and she's written this, that, you know, this keeps happening because politicians in Washington aren't listening to what the voters want. Um, so they keep sending messages that they're really unhappy. And I'm, I'm curious, though, if what it is, if that's if I'm curious if you agree with her, but not to set you up against her. But, it, you know, on the one hand, I understand voters are unhappy, but they keep installing politicians that want to do these really big, huge things that then voters say, no, 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 that's not what I wanted. So then they put the other guy in the other team, you know, and then they want to do really big, huge things because they think they just rejected my opponent and they wanted me. So I'll do really big, huge things. And then the voters say, no, 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 that's not what I wanted. So, I mean, do voters want incremental center right, center left focus on my problems? I mean, and, and if somebody actually stopped with the go big or go home, like we might not see a wave for a while. What's happening? I think some of that is true. And I think certainly with Joe Biden's election, you know, he was he had a mandate to be a caretaker and to end Donald Trump's presidency and to take COVID seriously and focus on getting the economy back up from COVID. That, that's really all he had a mandate to do. And he comes into office and he does like everything but that. Uh, and, and so I, I think you're going to see a wave election in, in part this time because of that. You saw a wave election in 06. Uh, because frankly, the war had gone badly, and 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 George Bush had pushed a couple of things in in uh, that were that were not popular in the middle, including a, an amnesty program and Social Security privatized accounts. You know, which uh, again, I, I I was not opposed to, to to that, but that those those two things weren't 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 supported by by the voters in the middle. But I also think if we step back 
and we look at all these elections, part of what's happening is a snapping to a grid of realignment. Uh, and this is something that that is 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 really unmistakable in the data. Right now, only six states send, send senators to Washington that are in split a split delegation, one from each party. Only six. That's the lowest number in the history of our country since we started electing senators in, in, in the early part of the uh, 20th century. Only 16 House districts deviated from their vote for president in 2020. Uh, that's the fewest number ever. Uh, only 47 of our 435 House districts have not voted the same way three elections in a row for president. And so what you're seeing is sort of this snapping to a grid. Uh, and that's unusual in American politics. You know, if, if, if you go back and, and, and look, uh, in, in 1978, um, I, I remember going to the polls uh, with my grandparents. I actually made the paper. This is the first time I was ever interviewed uh, about Lamar Alexander's election as governor uh, in Tennessee. I was eight years old. Uh, my county that day voted for Lamar Alexander, Republican, for governor by 17 points. But it voted for a Democrat for senator by 17 points on the same day, a losing Democrat, by the way. Uh, that split ticket voting doesn't happen to that level uh, anymore. But it was still happening 10 years later when I made my first vote in 1988. Ronald Reagan won my county by 25. Democrat for U.S. Senate Jim Sasser also won my county by 25. What happened in 2020? Well, same place, same place I grew up in East Tennessee. Donald Trump won my county by 51 and the Republican candidate for Senate won it by 54, right? So you, you were seeing a 30 to 50 point gap between presidential and Senate votes in previous elections. Now you got a three point gap. And so it, it just, we just no longer divide our votes up much. There are swing voters who move from one party to the next from election to election. There aren't many ticket splitters left. And so that's how you end up seeing House districts sending members of Congress who match the way they vote for president and sending two senators of the same party uh, to, to, to Washington. And so I think many of these waves, you know, politics like tectonic plates, like they continue to move and grind against each other. And every once in a while you have an earthquake and, and that earthquake either speeds up the movement for a time or it slows it down for a time. And I think these wave elections in many ways are like little earthquakes. But the plates keep moving and they keep moving the same direction they were moving before the earthquake until they hitch again and we have another little earthquake. And so I think these wave elections are sort of a just a, a period of, of tectonic plate friction uh, where, where they're rubbing up against each other pretty closely now, but they keep moving in the same direction. And, and really, that's what we wrote about in the book was that this was a realignment that was not episodic. Uh, it, it was a bigger trend and it wasn't about one candidate. Donald Trump was was someone who benefited from the realignment, but he didn't cause it. But let me ask you, and that's very interesting. You know, let's say I mean, I know this is totally out of fashion because, you know, elites getting together in a smoke filled room or non smoke filled room because it's illegal now. You can't smoke indoors, <laughs> um, which is fine with me. It saves me on my dry cleaning bill, although I do <laughs> like cigars. Um, if, the you know, if elites in Washington got together, but, but maybe, you know, flew to, you know, Omaha so that they could claim they weren't in Washington <laughs> and said, these wave elections are not good for the country because it's like we're, we're lurching from left to right, left to right. Congress is dysfunctional. We're not getting anything, you know, we're not addressing some problems we have. I mean, we need to improve our cybersecurity and catch up on hypersonic weapons and, and, 
you know, we do need to do something about entitlement programs because we're going to run out of money or whatever. People have their reasons. Is there any way that you could address this idea that voters are unhappy? We're going to try and we're going to try and mediate some of this or ameliorate some of this whiplash. Um, in other words, maybe you could say, all right, whoever the next president is, we're not going to do something too big. We're just going to do incremental and try and work to, I mean, is there, is my point is, is there even a fantastical, unrealistic, will never happen solution? Or are you just saying voters are unhappy and they'll be unhappy until they're not? Well, I think you had that opportunity with Joe Biden. You know, you nominated someone who was a decade past his prime, who uh, was picked for very pragmatic reasons, right? He was a tactical nominee. Let's get the guy who might be have the best chance at beating Donald Trump, period, end of story. Not the guy who made our liberal hearts go aflutter. Um, and, and a guy with no political future, right? He came into office as a one-term president from the first day. I don't care what Jen Psaki says. And so it would have been very easy for him to say, look, I'm just going to be a national healer. And we're going to be very incremental and get us out of this crisis of COVID. And that's it. And if and, and anybody tries to do ideology on the left, I'm going to shut them down. They're going to try to do ideology on the right. I'm going to shut them down. We're going to just focus on one thing, bring the country together for four years. I'm a transitional president. You know it and I know it. Um, I think that that could have possibly slowed this cycle, uh, but but he was unwilling to do it because the forces in the Democratic primary are just too big. And, you know, it goes beyond politics. You know, there's a survey out there that says today 45 percent of Democrats would be unhappy if their child married a Republican. Now, in 1960, that number was four percent. Now it's forty five. And if you want to compare it to other things, only 10 percent of Democrats would say they'd be unhappy if their kid married someone of another religion. Only 7 percent say they'd be unhappy if their kid married someone of the other race. Only a quarter of Democrats say they'd be unhappy if their kid married someone of the same gender. So they're most offended by the fact that your kid may come home from college with a fiance who's a Republican. And so it's it is a, we're in a spot where uh, this partisan conflict uh, it, it might be irreconcilable at the federal level. I mean, if someone is bland and futureless as Joe Biden can't do it, then it's possible the only answer here is to push more questions back to the states. Uh, and that, you know, most people are happy with their state government. You've seen that through COVID. Most governors have been much more popular than president either party uh, during the pandemic. And so it's possible that maybe we just, some of these great questions in society, we just need to kick back to the states Make Washington a lot less relevant, a lot less important in our life. Well, <laughs> I guess hope springs eternal on that. I was thinking about Joe Biden, and I think it's just proof that when you want to be president, you want to be president. And it doesn't matter uh, how old you are, how young you are, or what you think is going on. I mean, these guys, they don't, or ladies, they don't, they, nobody wants to be a caretaker because I think mentally what it takes to want to be president, to see yourself in that job um, it's makes a disorder. it almost impossible to, to downshift and just. It's a disorder curable only by a pine box. Yeah. 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 I, so true. Which which is also a thing in the Senate. My father used to tell me in his, in his late 70s, mid, mid 70s, he was having a conversation with a business associate once and they were making plans about something. He said, you don't understand. My future is now. My future, I don't have, my future isn't 10 to 15 years when this thing might come to fruition. My future's today. 
And you, you sometimes wonder, you know, with somebody like Joe Biden, he's just wanted to be president for so long. Um, if part of this was this idea that you're finally here and you just want to make this happen. Um, hey, I, one last question before um, I close this episode of In Trump Shadow. And I encourage everybody to check out The Great Revolt because it is still a great uh, primer on exactly who the Republican Party is today when you think about voters, not the politicians, but the voters. Uh, co-authored by Brad Todd, my guest here, and his co-author, Selena Zito. Brad, one, one thing that the Republican Party has not cracked yet is the popular vote. And look, we have a constitutional system that is about the Electoral College and winning the states. And that's what matters. But these things are very psychological. You know, when you and I were growing up, the Electoral College and the popular vote never conflicted. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of Republicans who don't want to change the system at all, but they do feel like over time, if this becomes a norm, it becomes untenable and it starts to rip at the fabric of the country because, and look, you look at Trump and the arguments he made about fairness, everything with him in 2016 and in 2020 to some degree, particularly 2016, was always about fairness. You know, the way the Republican National Committee is running the primaries, you know, not fair. This is rigged. That's rigged. It's not even people aren't following the rules, it's the rules are rigged. And I, I'm wondering if you worry as a Republican that you guys need to crack the popular vote code when it comes to presidential elections so that the mandate Republican presidents have, the way the country feels about the election of Republican majorities is not over time uh, looked at with an increasingly lie uh, just because of this idea that there's something and again I'm, I'm not even saying I agree with this but there's something inherently unfair about winning the presidency when you didn't win the most win over the most voters in the country you know I spend zero time worried about this uh, and uh, I, I think it's a great moment. And that's not acceptable. You need to worry about this. So <laughs> pretend you're worried about I, it. I think it's a great civics moment uh, for the American public for this to happen. You know, everything in our system is based on the United States being a plural noun. We are a collection of states. Uh, we allow states to send senators to Washington to represent the state. We allow House delegations. We even pick them by, we apportion those by states. You know, a lot of people don't know quite aware that House districts are actually varying sizes, quite a, quite a bit of variance in size. Uh, but because they're apportioned by states and then within each state, those delegations, those, those districts are all the same. Right. And so once we go to the Electoral College, we elect a president by state. That's what's winner take all in every state. If there is a tie in the Electoral College, the U.S. House votes to break the tie, but they do it by state. Each state gets one vote to help break that tie. So our entire system is set up so that to be held political power in America, you must have a majority of states. That means you need a majority of majorities. Uh, within each state, and each state's the only one. The popular vote nationally, it's not even counted anywhere officially. Congress does not record a national popular vote. It only exists in the newspaper. It, we record votes by state, and those are certified by state. The state's electors, then, whether you win by one vote or win by a million votes, they all count the same. So I, I think that when you have a system set up to do that, 
with those incentives to be only driven by states, then it becomes a strategic choice by each party. To me, the bigger question is not, does the Republican victory when they don't win the popular vote have legitimacy? The bigger question is who are the morons making up democratic strategy that can't win a majority of the states? We choose platforms deliberately. We make them intentionally so that we think they give us the strategic best chance to win. And so the question, if the Democrats did autopsies, which they don't do, like Republicans do all the time. Um, and by the way, I'm not exactly endorsing autopsies. All right. Like they're, 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 it's not necessarily a constructive process. I'm just noting they don't do them. Uh, but if you were to do a Democratic autopsy, someone would have to fairly ask, do we need to tick off more Californians? If, if, in order to please more people in Ohio, because if we could carry Ohio and we could carry Indiana and we could carry Iowa, we can we can win. And, and, and by the way, if we lose 10 points in California, it doesn't matter. Right. It, it would hurt the popular vote total, but it might help. them. So they ought to figure out what it takes to make Iowans and Indianans and Ohioans happy, deliberately trying to take some Californians and make them agitated. That's a question. To me, that's the reverse of what you just asked. And, uh, I, you know, elections are legitimate when they are, are fair and people accept that they were con conducted fairly. And if, if you believe that merely losing the popular vote means it's not fair, then you should go consult the Constitution. And if you don't like what you find in the Constitution, Article 5 is there ready for you to use to change it. Um, and, and so I, I guess I'm trying not to be flip, but, but, but that's kind of my view of it. Brad Todd is a Republican consultant, co-author with Selena Zeno of the book, The Great Revolt. Also coined the phrase, Ohio is the new Missouri, and Wisconsin is the new Ohio, which is apropos of our final point here. Brad Todd, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump Shadow. Thanks a lot, David. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.